0: I mentioned during the announcements, this morning we have the opportunity to kick off a new sermon series, a study of the book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn there with me now. I've been looking forward to this for some time. I've never been a farmer, uh, but I think I have uh, some, some better sense of what a farmer uh, must feel like at different times of the year. Uh, I feel like I've been plowing the ground and study for the uh, course of the, the summer and, and, this, and, uh, and, uh, and trying to prepare for this, but uh, this morning I get the joy of beginning to put the seed in the ground as we look at the uh, particular passages week after week. If you're new to Grace Covenant, this is our, our regular pattern. We take a book of the Bible and we work our way through that. Uh, the big theological term is ex- consecutive expository teaching. Uh, Meaning, we don't skip over any verses, uh, even though at times we may prefer to do so because they're controversial or uh, it just hits an area where uh, the one speaking is incredibly weak and feels very inadequate to be speaking on the subject. Fortunately, uh, God uses weak and broken things. uh, uh, But the whole purpose is that we would hear what God has to say week after week, not skipping any part of it. And we begin our series this morning in the book of Hebrews, and I pray that it will be a profitable one for us as a church and for each of you, even as it is, has been for me in, in preparation. This morning we begin at the beginning, in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. And so hear the word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we come with great thanksgiving that you have given us this, your word, and we pray now with great confidence in accordance with your promise that your word would be at work within us as we come to you. We pray that we would not lean on our own understanding and our own intellectual capacities, but that your spirit would open our hearts, open our minds, and open our eyes, that we may see you and see ourselves. And the word would shape and mold until each of us, all of us, are conformed to the image of Christ, reaching the full maturity that you have ordained that your children should be. So, Lord, piece by piece, as you shape us, sculpt us, Lord, may we recognize what your word elsewhere tells us, that we are your handiwork. May we become more and more uh, the pieces of art that you are working in. Make us like Christ, that we may experience and behold his glory. To you we give praise and to you we cling, even now as we come before you to worship by listening for you to speak. We pray in Christ, amen. In his autobiography, which is called the, the Magic Lantern, the legendary Swedish filmmaker Ingmar Bergman tells a story behind one of his most critically acclaimed films. He tells the story of how one day in years following World War II, he was walking around somewhat in a, a funk. He was, he was discouraged. He was um, feeling the er- early... Of of depression setting in. He was looking for answers and he was not able to find any. And so, as he was wandering around one day, he found himself wandering into a large European cathedral. Once he had entered through the front doors and then entered into the sanctuary, he found himself surrounded on all sides by a series of glorious stained glass windows. He went kind of meandering from window to window, looking at each one. Each one, a depiction of a story from the Bible. And he would take notes. He appreciated the artistry with which these panes of glass had been, been created. And he just wandered and wandered until he came upon one particular window. It was a window that was reflecting the story of the Good Shepherd. And he stopped there before that particular window, and he said he just stood there, and he stared, not really having a particular reason, nothing conscious within him, but he stood there staring at the magnificence of the window, and in particular, the the central figure, uh, the depiction of the shepherd. And without consciously thinking about it, he said that he heard himself audibly speaking to this figure, and he said, talk to me. Talk to me. Talk to me. And yet the empty sanctuary remained deathly silent. And so Bergman left that church, returned to the boarding house where he was making his temporary residence. He went to his room and he began writing the script for a movie that he would come to call The Silence. Now, The Silence is a dark film that deals with people who are in despair, people who are looking for help but feeling totally defeated, totally despondent, because they feel they never hear from God, to the surprise of many filmmakers, including Bergman himself, this film, which he made as an expression of his own heart and his own life through, through his art, was not only critically acclaimed, that part was not a surprise. Bergman was a genius artistically and, and uh, cinematically. But it was a box office smash. Something about what he had put on the screen resonated with people. Many people could relate to what Bergman Was saying and what Bergman was feeling—that there was a God out there, but that he wasn't talking. Many people ask the question whether, consciously or or just reflexively, does God really speak? Some of you may be asking that question right now. We ask that question often at our deepest, darkest times, but not exclusively then. And you may be in a funk right now, and you may be asking or have been asking, does God really speak? Or maybe things are okay, but you desire a a, a deeper understanding of the meaning of life and and how to live in a a relationship with God, And, and you're wondering, does God really speak? And many people, like Bergman, on, on that day, they go their way very skeptical and cynical and thinking to themselves, God does not speak. But through the writer of the book of Hebrews, in these very opening verses, God is shouting out to us, Yes, I do. See, so God has spoken to our forefathers in many and various ways. And in these last days, he's continuing to speak, and he speaks to us by his own son. That's what the passage says. In the past, God spoke in many and different ways and through the prophets. How is it that God spoke in the past? Well, one of the primary ways, one of the most fundamental ways is through creation. That's what Psalm 19 is all about, that the creation is a reflection of the the glory of our God. Paul picks up on that theme in in Romans chapter one when he writes these words, what can be known about God is plain because God has shown it for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made So people are without excuse. And so what Paul is saying, which picking up on the theme, elaborating and applying what the the, uh, the, the psalmist is saying and elsewhere in the scripture saying is that when we go out and look all around us, creation is testifying to the one who has created it. It is saying to us that there is a master artist who put all things in motion, who who made all things, spoke all things into existence. And as we look at the different aspects of creation, we are able, therefore, to be able to get an understanding, not only that there is a God who created these things, but we can get some idea of what God is like. And as Paul says, his invisible characteristics, they become evident. When you stand before the ocean or you stand on top of a mountain looking off into the valleys, or you're in the Midwest and you look where the endless plains, there is an awe that should strike us as we think about this, is how incredible this is and almost insignificant that we would seem. It tells us something about the majesty and the grandeur of our God. When the storms come rolling through, whether they are a heavy thunderstorm or a tornado or a hurricane or just a storm that is coming threatened, we are reminded that our God is powerful. Our greatest engineering is not able to sustain itself against some of these storms. And yet to our God, this is but a breath. He is so powerful and we are able to see the nature of the power. The complexity, not only of the way that our bodies are made and our life uh, consists, but the complexity and the interaction of all of the things in creation, the food chain, everything else, tells us of the orderliness and the detail in the mind of our God. And the creation testifies that there is a God. And Jesus had even said of this is that, you know, if, if his people, whether well, first he was challenging the Pharisees, but if his people... Don't acknowledge him and they don't give testimony to it. Even the rocks and the trees will scream out and testify about our God. That's why Johannes Kepler, the father of astronomy, had had said this. Any astronomer who is undevout is mad. In other words, what he was saying is for those who know the stars uh, the best and they spend their time and they learn about them and they spend their time watching them. And if you're gonna look at that thing and you're gonna look at, at at the heavens and you don't therefore feel an awe about the creator God, then you're nuts. That's what Kepler was saying. And he's not the only scientific mind that had that perspective. Apparently Albert Einstein had a perspective somewhat similar. Well, Kepler was a believer, Einstein was not what we would call a believer, but he had a tremendous respect for God. John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, uh, records a, a conversation, an interview, uh, with, an interview with a friend of Albert Einstein talking about this very subject. And, and here's what the scientist friend of Einstein said about Einstein's view of creation. The design of the universe is very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that's why Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as basically a very religious man. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined and they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt religions had run across, uh, the reg- he had run across did not have a proper respect for the author of the universe. And so Einstein, who knows far more about the complexities of different aspects of the universe, he's saying people like me, you know, give our two-bit opinion, and it's almost blasphemy of how belittling we are of the majesty and the glory of God. And so for the scientists out there, I offer my apologies for how I do that. Uh, have mercy on me. creation speaks. And Jesus often pointed to creation, not just to testify to there as a God, but that as creation speaks, that it would bring comfort to us, that it would do pastoral work in our lives. During a summer of the mount, Jesus says, you know, look at the birds of the air and consider the lilies of the field. And the word look and the word consider, they're not just kind of suggestions. They're not just throwing things out there. Uh, they, they, have, they are imperatives. They are telling us, commanding us, this is what you are to do. And counselor author Paul Tripp, he takes this particular passage and saying, when Jesus is saying, look at the birds of the air and, and uh, you know, consider the lilies of the field. He says that when we're experiencing anxiety, when life just seems to be out of sorts, he says Jesus' prescription is go bird watching. And the reason he does that is very practical. He says because if you're feeling life is out of control, you just, you just, you're just feeling the, the anxiety uh, beginning to uh, reign within you. And then you go out and you watch. Just sit there and watch. As the birds go about their business, day in and day out, building their nests, bringing things back to fortify, going out again, coming back and feeding their young. They continue to go about their business. There is something about seeing that, that God is speaking to us saying, I've got this, I'm in control, calm down. Because Jesus actually says, and if God is gracious to them, if he provides for the birds, if he's providing for, you know, the, the lilies of the field. Aren't you worth even more, you who are created after his image? And so the creation speaks and it testifies to God and it is at work and, and, and helping us to deal with our day-to-day lives. It's an important aspect that's often overlooked by, by many of us in our our so we're so so busy, even though we here are so blessed with so many different aspects of this creation that we can go out, you know, within ten minutes and see all sorts of things. And creation speaks. But creation has its limitations. See, creation speaks of the majesty and the glory of God. Creation tells us something of the nature of our God. Creation can calm our souls in certain times of unsettledness. But creation is not able to tell us specifically how to be reconciled to that God when we have violated his word, when we have wandered away from him, when we have become enemies, when we don't care about him, when we have allowed our brokenness to reign in our lives. Theologians refer to speaking of creation as a general revelation, but it only a specific revelation that God is speaking his plan of redemption, his plan of salvation, his plan of reconciliation that can help us to understand how we can relate to this God that is so majestic and is so good. So God speaks through creation. He's spoken through in the past, if you look through your Old Testament, through other unusual modes. He speaks through, has spoken through what you would call a, a theophany, the, a physical expression of God without actually seeing God. Perhaps most famous of those expressions is the burning bush that Moses encountered God in. The bush was burning, but it was not being consumed. God was speaking through the bush. God was present, but Moses really couldn't see God. It just it's beyond our comprehension that God had made himself known, made himself present, spoke, and yet not all of God was present. Or at least not all of God. The, the essence of God was not exhausted. If you thumb through the Old Testament, you find some that are almost humorous. A prophet named Balaam was, you know compromised, and so God started speaking through his donkey, which is telling us that there's nothing that God cannot use to speak when he has something that he wants to say. And as the writer of Hebrews says, God spoke not only through creation, it's part of the many and various ways, and spoke through the donkey and through the bush, but God spoke through his prophets. The prophets were a bunch of guys, mostly, but not limited to them, but the, a bunch of people that God raised up for specific purposes to address specific people groups in their times of need, whether their time of need was because of their brokenness and their, their pain and feeling the need of being comforted and promises of being rescued, or whether in their own self-sufficiency and self-righteousness they began to get hard from God, wander from God, in which case uh, the message would go and to remind them that God will not be taken for granted and that God is all powerful. God raised these prophets up to go speak to the peoples and their words are recorded for us throughout the Old Testament. And every one of the prophets, even though their circumstances were different and they spoke to their particular context, every one of them has this in common because every one of them then pointed to the ultimate promise that was to come in the person of Jesus Christ. And so some of the prophets would be speaking to those who were hurting, and he would remind them that someday, the one who was promised in Genesis 3.15, after our first parents had first fallen, God had made the promise then that he would be sending one, the seed of the woman, who would fix the problems. He would do what Adam and Eve had been told to do, but failed to do, and he would take care of it himself. And those who were hurting, those who were outcasts, those who were living in exile under oppression, they would be told of this king who was going to come and who would reign. One who would be a deliverer and he would free, set free those who were being oppressed. And he would uh, invite in and he would put his arms around those who were hurting and who were broken and they would not be rejected by this king. But other prophets were going to the people at at times when they were in rebellion, not only the people of God, but at other times the, the nations that surrounded them. And the prophets would go and they would speak of this this prophet who was to come, who would reign, Uh, but they would talk about the, the prophet, the Messiah, who was going to come, who would be despised and rejected and even killed. Each of these prophets spoke something pointing to the coming of Jesus, but they were kind of like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, but without the benefit of the lid, the cover, the picture to put it all together. And so people are confused. Now, which is it going to be? Is it going to be a king who's going to come and reign and deliver the people? Or is it going to be a, 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 one who comes like a prophet who is rejected and despised and is killed? But the idea of putting these two things together, it just, it just was baffling, not only to the people, but to the prophets themselves. It's not that there was anything lacking in what they were saying. They were speaking what God wanted them to say. It was part of what's called the, the, pro, the progress, the progressive plan of redemption. God was revealing different things, everyone pointing to the one, And yet, in the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, they could get different parts, but they couldn't see how they all fit together. And So God spoke through the prophets, and he continues to speak. We we understand more about the, the sovereignty and the work of God because of what they are doing. And we understand more about Jesus because of the words that they prophesied about him. But the limitations in what they spoke made them appropriate for the time, and yet still lacking for all time because the key piece had not yet come. And so the scripture is very clear. God has spoken through all history to his people, through his prophets, in many and various ways. But the question for us is, does God still speak? Does he speak today or did he just kind of leave us you know, a history book, and we figure God spoke. He told us everything we need to know, and, and now we kind of kind of extract from that book you know, instructions and do the best we can. Or is God still speaking? Well, there's an incredible contrast that the writer of Hebrews has between verse 1 and verse 2. In verse 1, he says, God has spoken in the past and in these ways. He spoke to our forefathers, but in these last days, and we don't need to get caught up in last days mania. That just simply means... At this period, there's there's no other period of redemption to come after this. But in these last days, he's speaking to us. He's speaking to us by his son. Now, I have to confess to you this. When somebody begins a conversation with me that says, God told me, my radar kind of goes on, the antennas and the first question I have, unless God told me, is immediately followed up with a Bible verse, is what kind of weirdo am I talking to? Not everybody is that way, and it's perhaps a confession of my own judgmentalism uh, in some ways, but, you know, I've had many of those conversations, many of you probably have had those conversations with people who have just come, well, God said this, and how do you, how do you, how do you have a conversation about that? How do you say, well, God's wrong? I mean, he, he, um, and most people who start conversation that way are uh, not really open to the idea that eh, it may not have been God speaking or speaking what you think that he was speaking here. Now, my reason for that may be kind of a, still a, a lingering knee-jerk reaction from a time when I was in college and right after college, a period where I went to a church that was constantly seeking after new and extra revelations from God. And I remember sitting in the church at times, for, and I was you know, there for a, a while, and at, every week they would ask for people who would have a word of knowledge to stand up and to share with that, and, and what I remember perhaps most vividly from that time is uh, the number of different guys throughout the time I was there that would stand up in the, and then point to a woman in the congregation and say, God has told me that you are to be my wife. I thought it was weird then, but then when I started thinking about it, usually it was a dorky guy, and he was, you know, and he always picked the girl that it would take an act of God for him to get. I mean, just, and most bizarre was over, I don't know if they were a month apart or whatever, but two different guys, God told that the same woman was going to be their wife, I didn't stick around long enough to find out how that one worked. I assume God gave her a message, which is, you know, cut loose both of them, Um, but uh, I, I, I don't know. But that doesn't mean God doesn't speak. Because the writer of Hebrews is telling us that God continues to speak. In verse two, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, I know most people cringe when you start these Greek lessons, but this will be a short and hopefully a painless one and hopefully a a helpful one. Uh, But where it says he has spoken in the Greek, it is known as the aorist tense. And the aorist tense, we don't really have a parallel in English, but the aorist tense means something that has happened at a point in time in history, but has continuing effect. It's continuing to be at work. And so to translate it in English, has spoken is is a pretty good translation. He has spoken. It's not he spoke as in past tense, but he has spoken, meaning there was a definitive point in time, and yet he's continuing to speak. In these last days, a definitive thing that happened in history, God sent his own Son. And by his son, he continues to speak to us today. And his son, as we will see, is the radiance of God's glory. As Paul writes it, he is the exact representation of God, but in the flesh. And the son is speaking to us in a number of different ways In Jesus, we can know God and we can know what God is like. You may remember his disciples wanting to see the Father came to Jesus and says, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. And he wasn't saying, I'm a chip off the old block and, you know, you should see our baby pictures. You know, I am exactly like my dad was. And so, you know, we look a whole lot alike. But he's saying, God, who is a spirit, I have come in the flesh. And it's not so much the physical appearance, but the the character the heart, the compassion, the nature of Jesus fully. If you wanna know what God is like, you look at Jesus. He is the final piece of the puzzle. He is the picture on the box so that everybody knows how all of the pieces fit together. If you wanna know what God is like, you look to Jesus. And more than just knowing what God is like, when you look to Jesus and you read about his uh, teaching and the way he lived his life uh, as recorded in the gospels, you then get to see the, the heart and the mind of God because Jesus acted always in accordance with the heart of the Father. And Jesus taught what God would have us to know. And through the death and the resurrection, redemption is made complete. By the Son and the Son alone. Reconciliation belongs to those who believe it is ours by God's grace through faith in his gift of his son and so in a very real way God is speaking but Jesus is God's final word New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce says it this way the story of divine revelation is a story of progression up to Christ so he's talking about the prophets there And all the things we read in the Old Testament, the ways that God spoke and what he spoke, and uh, all of that is the progress of redemption. The story of divine revelation is a story of progression up to Christ, but there is no progression beyond him. And what Bruce is saying is that Jesus is the final word. There is nothing to be added that would help us know better how to be redeemed. There is nothing that is lacking once he has come. Those who want to know what God is like, those who want to know how to be reconciled to God, those who want to know how to walk with God, we look to and we find in Jesus. And so this passage, in these last days, the Father is continuing to speak, but he speaks to us in and by his Son. And there is nothing to be added There is no, I'll say, new revelation of the plan of God's redemption. Now, for some of you who are quick thinkers or maybe you've thought about this before, I've been wrestling with all week with another question that some of you may have or inevitably will have, which is this, is well, what about all these letters that are written after the time of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, including Hebrews? Jesus was not physically on earth at the time that this was written and and nor the other epistles that we have in our scripture. So should we assume that we should ignore those things because, you know, God sent Jesus and said, boom, I'm done talking? And I would say the answer is is no. Because Jesus is the final word, but he's the final word on the subject, not the final word that God has spoken. In other words, everything that God says now points us back to the Son. And every epistle, though they deal with people in different circumstances, and different contexts, and they tell us the ways that we are to live our lives in relation to God, in relation to one another, in relation to the government, and how we're to put our churches together. I mean, any number of different issues that we find and we extract and we are shaped by these writings, these writings all point us back. They all take us back to the final word. They all are about kind of reflecting and connecting with living lives in light of all God has spoken in and by Jesus. And so they have value. And they speak to us. But they always point us back to the person of Jesus. Now, there's another aspect of that, too, that we also need to understand. While the Scripture, and particularly those prophecies and things that point to the person of Jesus, but all of Scripture is God breathed, and all of Scripture is considered to be special revelation, God is speaking. And he's inspired his writers to record what he wants us to have, particularly in the original languages. But he's not leaving us to simply mine from the book. He also continues to speak by his Holy Spirit. And we have a sometimes a semantic, but sometimes a theological dilemma in the evangelical church. Revelation is what God has spoken and he has now recorded it in the scripture. And in that sense, special revelation has stopped. There is nothing more to add. Jesus is the final word. There are certain people that God raised up to deal with certain subjects and and they deal with them by pointing back to Jesus. And that's revelation. But God takes this word in the person of his Holy Spirit and he applies it to us and he guides us and he directs us moment by moment, day by day, in our lives. And theologically that is known as illumination. In other words, he's not adding anything to the story. There's no no more progression beyond Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit helps us to take this word that He has inspired and then apply it specifically to our lives. Sometimes it's a matter of correction, sometimes it's a matter of instruction, sometimes about principle that we understand the principle and we got to step out because we're not promised the results. And so we step out faithfully in faith knowing that God is at work. And knowing the difference between revelation and illumination is important. I don't want to be one of those people that just, you know, gets uptight and become a word police. And so people use the word revelation often when they mean illumination. But if you don't know that there's a difference, that can be confusing. If you know there's a difference, and most people just understand the word revelation, you know what? So be it. But we, as God's people, need to know that there, there is this difference. There is this illumination because it's the Holy Spirit who is continuing to speak. And Jesus had promised this. Jesus says, it's better that I go. We can we, Camper introduced this to us in our confession. Jesus said, it's better that I go. And if I go, then the Holy Spirit will come and he will dwell within you and he will be with all. I mean, it's, he, he's not bound by any geography where Jesus, having taken on flesh, is, has limitations as we do. Not that he is in any way non-God. He is fully God, but he fully man, so he's in one place at, at a time, and that's it. But the Spirit is dwelling within all who believe everywhere and is in perfect union with Christ, and he is constantly pointing back to this final word, to Jesus. And when we want to hear what God is having to say, we have now two tracks that actually confirm on one another. We have a word that the Holy Spirit inspired and has recorded and kept for us that is God speaking by the Holy Spirit through the particular human writers. And then we have the Spirit who is also speaking to us. But the problem we have in our functional day-to-day lives or people in different traditions of Christianity tend to err and lean one way or the other. You know, some people who just, you know, hey, I have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is talking to me, I don't need this word thing. The Spirit will just guide me here's the problem. It's not that the Holy Spirit doesn't speak, and it's not that the Holy Spirit is not clear. The problem is, your antenna and my antenna is broken. And sometimes static gets in the way. And we may hear most, and we, a lot, and we may hear most, but we don't hear everything clearly, and it doesn't take a lot of static to change the course of our lives dramatically. Imagine for a moment when Moses was on the mountaintop receiving the Ten Commandments and all of a sudden at a certain particular time, kind of like radio interference or like you're driving under the tunnel underneath CW and you kind of lose. And it's only just a moment and you lose just, just a moment. And that's the difference between thou shalt not commit adultery and thou shalt commit adultery, right? I mean, how much static do you need to go off on totally different directions? And the fact is, every one of us has that static. Some have a whole lot of static. Some have just a little bit of static. It's not the problem of the Holy Spirit. But God has given us his word, which is written by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, when we believe that the Spirit is speaking to us, it would be confirmed in the word. It may not be direct passage, but the Holy Spirit, as he's speaking now, is never going to say anything contrary to the word that he's already given us. Nor is he going to add anything to it. God has spoken the final word. He's not going to say, okay, you have the Bible and that's good, but, you know, I've thought about a few other things. What he does is these principles of godliness that are embodied in the person of Christ, he brings to mind to us that we may understand. And when what you feel, you're hearing God speaking to you, and what you see in the scriptures, when they match, you have a pretty good confirmation. But here's the problem. It's not in the message, it's in us. I heard not long ago about a story of an old farmer who was uh, in the United Kingdom. Um, Kind of a crusty old guy from uh, Leeds, England who didn't like going to doctors much and hadn't gone to doctors much in his life. But eventually he broke down and went in and told the doctor, look I'm having a hard time hearing anything out of my ear. So the doctor ran the tests, told him here's here's the problem Here's the solution. And he gave him a, a really good hearing aid and said, so just wear this, and that should significantly correct your, your problem. Years went by, and the guy had not come back. But eventually he, he came back and he says, Doc, look, I've, I still have a problem. I, I, hear, I don't hear as well as I, I, even, I don't hear anything at all anymore. So the doctor, preparing to run some tests, looking at the notes, pulling his case files, looking at the notes, came out, and he said, here's the problem. I gave you the hearing aid. You've been wearing it in the wrong ear. And this is not a bad joke. I mean, it may be, but it's also, was it was a news story. This was a, a real situation. And, and the reason that it struck me, because that's like us. God has given us a means by which we are able to hear him. We are broken and sometimes a little bit deaf, but he's given us both the word and he's given us the spirit. But sometimes we are so tight, looking for ways that God's going to speak. And so I want God to speak to me through, you know, another donkey. Or I want, you know, God, if that's you, I want you to, you know, have a St. Bernard sit on a, you know, a white picket fence singing Yankee Doodle Dandy at midnight. Um, and if God chose to do that, and you walk by a St. Bernard singing Yankee Doodle Dandy at midnight on a white picket fence, then what would we say? God, is that you? I mean, we, we just because we take the things that God has used in the past and we stuff up our own ears at times not open to the fact that God is speaking and he's given us guidance as to how we are able to hear and to confirm the message that he is speaking to us the question is does God speak and God says yes I do I'm going to wrap up now with this is we've titled this series stay the course the reason for that will become evident as we work our way through this letter, but when the book moves to the more practical aspects, you know, uh, the writers and the scriptures usually, they lay this theological foundation, and then there's a point where it's therefore or now, and, and now here's the way that we're to live. The encouragement that the writer of Hebrews gives to us is to run the race, to stay the course. He's writing to a group of people who are in the midst or having experienced persecution, suffering oppression for a long time, and they want to be faithful. But with all these things that are in their lives, it's just becoming difficult. It's just becoming hard. Their motivation is wearing down. And the writer of Hebrews is writing this to them to say, stay the course. And the first and most fundamental principle that the writer of Hebrews thought that those who needed to be fortified need to know is that God speaks. And he has spoken in a lot of different ways throughout history, but now he speaks in, by, and through his Son, who is the final word. He is the same word who was with God in the beginning. He is the same word who is God. He is the same God, a word who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He is the final word. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, Keep your eyes and your ears focused on Him. That God would speak, He would encourage, He will correct, He will direct but he will enable you to stay the course when your course is set by the word. Let's pray. Father, we pray with great thanksgiving. That you have not left us to wonder, but you have given us your word. You have given us your word in writing, you have given us your word in spirit, and you have given us your word in the person of Jesus. And I pray that all of us, wherever we are on the course or whether we have wa- wavered off of the course, we would find our course corrected, guided, and fortified by hearing you speak in our time in the word and our time in prayer by the power of your spirit lord shape us i pray to the glory of your name we pray in the incomparable name of christ who is the word incarnated amen